you got a Bible, turn with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 is where we're at this morning as we work our way through this little epistle in the back of the New Testament. Uh, we've been looking at these evidences of assurance throughout uh, John's writing, and this morning we come to a third evidence that he gives us, and that's an evidence of this doctrinal core, doctrinal kernel that must be held on to uh, for those who would claim faith in Jesus Christ. They would claim to know God rightly and truly, uh, then there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a doctrinal core associated with that, and we're going to dig into that a little bit this morning as we read this text together. In 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, is where we're going to pick up and read down through verse 27 together. John says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it, that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because, you, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as, as it has taught you, abide in him. Now some of you are familiar with a little icebreaker game that gets played in various circles called True Truths and a Lie. Right? Some of you have played that game before, where maybe it's in a new small group, maybe it's in a new church, maybe it's in a new, like a business retreat, or maybe it's in a neighborhood gathering where everybody gathers in the room and people go around taking turns sharing two truths and a lie about themselves, right? So two statements that are factual and one that is false. So for instance, like if I were to share two truths and a lie with you, I would say something like, in my late teens, I caught an alligator on a bass fishing rod in the marshes of South Louisiana. In addition, I was hiking in the mountains of Colorado and came across a bear den and was chased down the hill along with one of the former elders in this church by a bear. In addition, right, I spent time in the basement of a Russian jail being interrogated in, a, in the interior of Russia. And so then your job would be to determine which of those two things actually happened and which of them did not happen, right? So you'd have to discern which were the two truths and which one was a lie. And everyone in the room would go around taking their turns guessing which, one was the, which two were the truths and which one was the lie. And it's just kind of a fun, lighthearted game and it helps you get to know people, some of their experiences, the things that they've encountered, things that have happened to them, things that they have done. Afterwards, you can come up to me afterwards and guess. We're not going to take time right now. But listen, listen, it's, it's a fun and lighthearted game, but just like that game, within the day and time in which we live, in fact, throughout the history of the church, there have been mixtures of truths and lies circulating. They get caught up together. 
And listen, these lies are not innocent false statements intended to be humorous, insightful, and kind of contrast to the truth and let you get to know people, but rather they are deceptive. In fact, they are deadly lies. Now listen, at the, at the risk of sounding like an alarmist and saying that we all need to move to Montana and collect canned goods and ammunition, right? What I, what, the first thing I want to say to you from this text is this, with regards to the doctrinal core of Christianity, is that we are being hunted. We're being hunted. It's a reality in which we live. It's a reality in which every Christian has lived in every era in which they have lived. Every generation and every geography that we are being hunted. Listen to what John says in the, the text again in verse 26. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Right? There were dissenters from the church who had gone out with a different theology or a different understanding and they'd begun to try to come back into the church and persuade others to follow them in their beliefs. They were not passively sitting by saying this is what we believe and this is what you believe but they were actively trying to recruit people to come alongside of them in their false beliefs. They were hunting church members. Now listen, as one who grew up in South Louisiana, I duck hunted quite a bit in my early years. Right from the time that I was like 11 to the time that I was in college, right, killed a lot of ducks in the marshes of South Louisiana. And there's one thing that I know to be true about ducks in South Louisiana from October to January is that a duck sitting on the water in that period of time is a sitting duck. It is a dead duck, right? It's a dead, now it's not very sportsmanlike to shoot a duck on the water. I'm just going to go ahead and throw that out there. Right? You want to call them in, right? You want them to cup their wings, and as they begin to cup their wings and begin to land, right before they hit the water, that's when you unleash the fury on them. And then the dog goes and gets them, and you breast them and put them on the grill, and then you eat them. Like, we, di we didn't kill just for fun. We actually ate what we killed, all right? So listen, don't write me that email, okay? So, so but listen, a, a, a sitting duck is a dead duck. It's a dead duck. And listen, there are many within churches and with, who will claim the name of Christ in our day and time who are sitting ducks when it comes to the understanding of the doctrinal core of Christianity. And one of the ways that I know that is through the emergence of cults that have risen off the pages of human history over the course of the last two millennia with divergent understandings. We'll get to that more here in a little bit. But listen to what John has to say. He says, you're being hunted there are people who want to deceive you, actively recruit you into these false ways of seeing and understanding Jesus. And he actually, he says in verses 18 and 19, he calls them the antichrists. Those who are opposed to the person and work of Jesus. Those who stand against what Jesus stood for. Those who deny the reason that Jesus has come to the earth. Right? He says there is the last hour, and the last hour in the New Testament frequently referred to that period, and almost exclusively referred to that period, following Jesus' death and resurrection. Right? This is the last hour, so we're all in the last hour subsequent to Jesus' arrival in human history. And so he says it's the last hour. You heard that many antichrists were coming. I think he's referring back to Mark, or not Mark, Matthew 24 there, where Jesus himself says to his disciples as he prepares them for his departure, he says, there are those who are going to come who are going to try to lead you astray. They're going to aim, that's going to be their aim to deceive you and lead, they're going to lead many astray. And so he says, you've heard that this is coming. I wanted to, and John says, I wanted to tell you now, it's here. 
there are many antichrists here. Those who departed from us, they went out from us because they were never really among us to begin with. For if they really had been belonging to us, they would have stayed among us, but they went out of us to show that they really weren't ever among us. You follow all that logic? Right, that's what he's saying. These are the antichrists who have a divergent, a different understanding of Jesus. And John doesn't say, listen, it's, it's their prerogative to have a different perspective, right? They can believe what they believe, it's going to be innocent. We can believe what we believe, it's going to be innocent. John says no. What does he call them in verses 22 and 23? He calls them liars. He calls them liars. He says, and no lie is of the truth. See, listen, John, hmm, let me see if I can break it down for you this way, right? Like, I love bluebell ice cream. Anybody else? Can I get a witness? Anybody? Okay, a couple of you, all right? Once again, last week, we're working on that, right? The show of hands, right? I love Bluebell ice cream, right? And Bluebell has so many different flavors. They got homemade vanilla, the great divide, the chocolate and vanilla together. They've got cookie two-step, which is one of the new flavors, which has become a very staple in our household. My wife loves the peanut butter and chocolate chip cookie dough mixture and the chocolate ice cream. Can't eat it around our dark because she's allergic to peanuts, but anytime she's out, we are gorging ourselves on that flavor, right? They got mint chocolate chip. They got all kinds of different flavors. But listen, back in, I think, what was it, 2015, the great bluebell famine, whenever they shut down, right? right people were like, like withering away. Because of, because of the goodness of Bluebell was gone. So they had to turn to Bluebell substitutes like Ben and Jerry's, right? Or Briars. They just don't compare. Now listen, that's my opinion. I don't see why anybody would have a different opinion, but that's my opinion, right? That Bluebell is, is hands down the best ice cream on the face of the earth. That's my opinion, you could have a different perspective and say that Ben and Jerry's or Briars or wherever, Dippin' Dots, that's pretty good too, but not quite Bluebell, okay? You could have a different perspective. John, what John is saying is that, listen, denying the, having a different view of Jesus is not like having a different view of what flavor of ice cream or brand of ice cream is your favorite. It's not a difference of opinion. It's a denial of the core of the Christian faith. It's a denial of historic reality, it's not like, deny, not like your opinion about ice cream, but it's like breaking the law of gravity. It's not like looking at gravity and saying, okay, things fall from the sky to the earth because there's this law that's in effect of gravity. You don't break the law of gravity by your own resources. You break yourself against it. And whenever you deny the doctrinal core of Christianity, you're not just emerging into your own perspective, but you're actually leaving behind this Jesus whom the apostles have been preaching and whom the, the audience that John is writing to had received. In fact, what John says by calling him a liar, he says you don't just have a liberal version of Christianity, you have a different religion. You have something altogether different than Christianity. Now listen, perhaps the, the, the best way to kind of get at the, 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 the essence of what they were denying about Jesus is to turn over to 2 John, Right, you got 1 John, then 2 John. 2 John's one chapter, so there's just verses. 2 John 7. In 2 John 7, listen to what John says, writing to the same audience at roughly the same historical period, same context, same things going on. He says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a deceiver, such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. 
So they were denying that Jesus was the Christ, the anointed Son of God, God's Messiah, and that he had come in the flesh, that the second person of the triune God, the Son of God from all of eternity, had been clothed in human flesh, that he had taken on meat. That's what carne is, right? It's meat. So every time you go to the Mexican restaurant and order carne asada, you're celebrating the incarnation of Jesus, right? In meat, in flesh, that he's come to take on flesh himself. They were denying that reality, right? And, and John says they are liars and they have a different religion. Because think about all that's tied up in the coming of Jesus in the flesh, right? All that's tied up in that. It's, 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 it's the response of God to the sinfulness of humanity, so the, the, even, these, the, even these dissenters were saying that they had not sinned. And John counters that claim in 1.8. If you have, say you have not sinned, then you're a liar. You deceive yourselves. The truth is not in you. Right? So it, it's, the sinfulness of humanity requires that the Son of God take on flesh and become like one of us. To be our substitute so that the love of God and the justice of God, the justice could be satisfied and the love could be experienced as the Father loves children and brings them into his home and adopts them. And that this Jesus, who is our substitute, could also be our, could be our advocate as one who is like us in every way except only sin. Right? That's all that's bound up. So if you're denying that Jesus has come in the flesh, what you're saying is this, God didn't have to come all the way down. He didn't have to suffer. He didn't have to bleed. He didn't have to die. He didn't have to be crucified. He didn't have to be a substitute. You are a pretty decent person. And like, you're good enough. You're smart enough. And doggone it, people just like you. Right? That, that's kind of the mentality. That God didn't have to come all the way down to send into human history, take on flesh, die in our place. That the justice of God, he just winks at sin and the love of God didn't cost him anything. It's not sacrificial at all. And so you're losing all of this in the denial of Jesus coming in the flesh. And listen, this was not a denial that was confined to John's day. It's one that exists in ours. And I think you see it in at least two places, church. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna use some language here. You see it in the cults, and I think you see it in the apostate church. Okay? You see it in the cults. First of all, you see it in the cults. You see it in things like Jehovah's Witness and Mormons. Right? Here's one of the things we need to understand. is like there's a pretty big umbrella under which Christian tradition operates. Okay? And so you got folks who are Presbyterian, you got Lutherans, you got Baptists, you got Pentecostals, you got, uh, you, you, you got non-denominationals, you got Episcopals, you got right, all this big, let's say Presbyterian, you got all this big umbrella under which Christian tradition operates. All right? Listen, here's what I want to say. Mormons and Jehovah's Witness, they stepped outside of that umbrella. They're no longer within historic Orthodox Christianity. And a lot to, they've got some really interesting beliefs, but at the center of what they believe about Jesus is divergent from what the church has always said about Jesus. Right? The Jehovah's Witness, they do not affirm the, the, the divinity of, uh, of, or the humanity of Jesus. 
they, whenever you read the Jehovah's Witness literature, you will find that what they think about Jesus is very different than what we think about Jesus. Charles Taze Russell said that Jesus was a created individual, that before he came on earth, he was the archangel Michael in heaven, right? And that he came to earth, that he died, he was resurrected. He wasn't resurrected in bodily form, but he's resurrected as this immortal spirit who is back in the heavens as the archangel Michael and will one day come and wipe out everybody who is not a Jehovah's Witness, the, the, the 144,000, right? Different view of Jesus. The Mormons have a different view of Jesus. That he wasn't the, the, the true and only God, but he's one of the gods, right? And because of the way he lived, he has, he's got his own planet now. And you too can have your own planet and be a god too, right? There's different views of Jesus within the cults because they've stepped outside of the broad umbrella of Christian tradition. But listen, there's also... I'd call it a, an apostate church. And I think it expresses itself in two ways in our era, in our day. In mainline theology and in prosperity theology. In mainline theology, and what I mean by that is this. Listen, within the Episcopal church and the Methodist church and the Presbyterian church, there are conservative branches that have stayed under the umbrella. But there are what have commonly been called liberal branches that have left the umbrella. And while their doctrinal statement may still continue to have language consistent with those who are still under the umbrella, the way they speak about Jesus and present Jesus is very different than perhaps the way they present him is very different than what they profess. And many of these mainline churches that have kind of stepped outside of the umbrella or at least have one foot outside the umbrella, listen, Jesus is kind of like a cosmic Barney. Remember Barney, that big purple dinosaur, right? And he just walks around patting little kids on the head, singing, I love you, you love me, we're a happy family with a great big hug and a kiss from me. That song is just seared somewhere in the back of my mind. I wish it would go away. Won't you say you love me too, right? He's like this big cosmic Barney who teaches everybody just to be nice to each other, right? To be sweet to each other. For everyone just to hold hands and lock arms and sing, we are the world, right? We are the children. Sing it, Stevie, right? Some of you get that reference. Some of you are like, who's Stevie, right? But that's kind of the view of Jesus in many of these mainline churches. Or in prosperity churches, right? In prosperity churches, Jesus is a sugar daddy, all right? Do I need to... Explain what that Jesus is a sugar daddy in prosperity churches, right? Where Jesus is like the cosmic vendor who gives you everything that you could possibly hope for, dream, or imagine in this life. All right, you go to him as a vendor. You put right your coins in, and out spits whatever button you've pressed. Right, and and so he's just there to give you health and wealth, physical and material prosperity. But in both of these veins, both in mainline churches and prosperity churches, there, there is no bloody Jesus. There's no crucified Jesus. There's no broken Jesus. There's no substitute Jesus. There's no Jesus who speaks hard words and calls us to repentance. That Jesus is non-existent. When you listen to the preaching, it, they may still have it in their profession, but the way they present him is in a very different way. Very different way. And so listen, this is not passive, it's active. 
we're being hunted. So what do we do about it? All right, there's the lie. Let me give you two truths. The first truth that we see in this text, how do we distinguish truth from lies? How do we know that God, that we know God on a day where everyone is spiritual, right? Everyone claims to be spiritual. May not have any kind of rootings for that, but I'm spiritual. Or they have divergent theologies. It's the first way. First way is this, John says, that you've got to live in the Spirit. Live in the Spirit. So in verse 20, in verse 27, both, John speaks of his readers having been anointed and receiving an anointing. In both of those verses, let me, let me read them for you again. He says in verse 20 and 21, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. In verse 27, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So John speaks of this anointing that his readers have received. Now listen, when that word anointing shows up other places in the New Testament, almost exclusively it shows up in the context of the Holy Spirit. In the same context, in Luke 4.18, Luke writes, the Spirit, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The Spirit and the anointing. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Paul writes, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. So you're in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The anointing and the spirit and the seal in 2 Corinthians. In Acts 10, 38, when Luke writes about Jesus at his baptism, he says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power at his baptism. The anointing and the spirit. Over and over in the New Testament, they show up together, and I don't think that's any different in 1 John chapter 2. When John's referring to this anointing they've received, he's speaking of the giving of the Holy Spirit in the lives of those who have come to faith in Christ. And so listen, here's what John is saying. I put this together. John is saying, you've been anointed, the Holy Spirit's come to dwell within you. And so you have knowledge that leads you to an understanding of the truth. That the Spirit internally gives witness to these things in your life and confirms the truth for you. And then down in verse 27, he says, therefore you have no need for teachers. Now, I don't think that what John is saying is that you have no need for anyone ever to teach you because he's writing a letter to them to teach them. (laughs) Right? And the New Testament affirms the role of teachers and the gift of teaching in the church and how it's supposed to operate. So I don't think that he's saying that. What he's saying is this. He's saying you have no need of these progressive prophets who have gone out from among you, have a new revelation about who Jesus is to come back and share any of that insight with you. That's what you don't need. Right, because the Holy Spirit's role, listen church, is not to lead us on from Christ, but it's to lead us to him and into him. It's to bring us to him and then to lead us deeper in our experience and relationship with him. That's his role. 
In fact, Jesus himself says, listen, the Spirit's not going to bring you new revelations about me. But he's going to take the things I've already taught you and he's going to confirm those things to you. Listen to what he says in John chapter 16. Jesus himself says this about the Holy Spirit. I know I'll put it in here. There it is. John 16, 13 to 15. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. The Spirit will take those things that are true about God, true about Christ, true about the reality of who he is, and he will take those things that are true and he will make them real in your life, before your eyes. Because the Holy Spirit has this illuminating ministry for us. Right, have you ever driven through a neighborhood like during the day and you're like, oh, that's a nice house. That house I, I like the architectural features. It's got a nice little stone out front, right? The flower beds are all nice and manicured. And so you're like, oh, that's, that's nice. And then you drive by the next house like, oh, that's, that's that one looks pretty good too. But then you drive by the same neighborhood at night and they have those foundation floodlights on, right? And those, those, the foundation floodlights are set in the places, in the appropriate places to highlight all the nuances and architectural features of that home. And as those lights shine on that home, you're like, whoa, I never saw that. It looked okay during the day, but it's beautiful at night. Because of the way the light illumines it. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Taking what Jesus has declared to us and taking what is true about God and making it real. Making Jesus beautiful and majestic and glorious before our eyes. The spotlight ministry of the Holy Spirit. He illumines to us these truths. So as we walk with Jesus, He's not leading us on from Him. Right, but he's leading us deeper into that relationship with him where we depend on him more tomorrow than we did yesterday. Where we see him as more beautiful a week from now than we did last week. So we don't need new revelation about who Jesus is, but the Spirit to take and illumine that which he's already revealed about himself and make it real before us. In fact, that's one of the ways that John says you can distinguish the Spirit of God from all the other spirits of falsehood. We're going to get there in a few weeks. In 1 John chapter 4, in verses 2 to 3, listen to what he says. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So those who want to lead us on from Jesus, those who want to deny the work of Jesus, those who say, listen, that's a good place to start, but this, this is where life really happens. This is where you really experience God. Not here, that's a starting line, right? But here's the finish line and it's different. No, John is saying, listen, the Spirit, that's not his role. His role is to take what is true and make it real. And if there's a, if there's a Spirit that's wanting to lead you on from Jesus, not into Jesus, more deeply and dependently, then there's a red flag that should go up in your heart and mind. So live in the Spirit. Listen to His internal witness. And His internal witness is always going to be consistent with pointing you to Jesus. Second, 
The second truth is this. Not only do we live in the spirit, but we let the gospel live in you. Let the gospel live in you. Listen, church, I want you to know something. Some of you are going to be like, raise your eyebrows at me when I make this first statement. But listen, the truth is not static. It's not static. But it's also not dynamic. The truth is organic. Okay, it's not static and it's not dynamic. It's organic. That means this, the truth does not change, but it changes us. It changes us. So you don't come into contact with ultimate reality and not be changed by it. Right? And listen to what John says in the text. In verse 24, he says, Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. Let it remain in you. Let it live in you. Let it continue in you. Notice what he doesn't say. He says, abide in what you heard from the beginning. It's not what he says. He didn't say remain in what you heard from the beginning. Continue in what you heard from the beginning. But let what you heard from the beginning, the gospel message that was brought to you, let it remain in you, not you remain in it. Because it's not a static entity, nor is it dynamic. It's not changing, but it's organic and it's changing you as it abides and lives and continues in your life. Let me see if I can break it down for you this way. Listen, it's like going to the doctor and the doctor saying to you, listen, I've got bad news. You've got a disease, right? You've got a disease, but I've got good news and that we've got medication for the cure. Here's the cure, right? So he prescribes you the medication, right? And you take, go, go to the pharmacy, you get it filled, right? Six months at a time because you do not want to run out of that medication. So you get it filled. You bring it home and you put it in your cabinet, and you're in proximity to the truth, you're in proximity to the medication, you're in proximity to the cure, right? But day after day, you continue to walk by that cabinet in the morning and you fix your coffee, right? Three or four cups, because some of you just are not any good before that, right? Three or four cups of coffee, and then you got a little bagel, and a little cream cheese action on that thing, and you're eating your bagel, and then you're getting dressed, and you're out of the door about your business, and you come home the next day, and you go to sleep, you wake up the next morning, walk, walk right by that cabinet once again, right? Coffee, bagel, out the door, and you just go about your routine and business, and you never take the medication. And it never settles into your stomach. And it never gets absorbed into your bloodstream. And moves around your body to bring the healing properties that the medication possesses in your life. John is saying, listen, the word, the gospel message that you heard from the beginning, it can't be something that you merely have proximity to or contact with. But it's got to be something that continues to abide in you, that it, it, it flows throughout your bloodstream. That it brings about healing in your life. It brings about change in your life as it lives inside of you. Right, even, even the author of Hebrews says the word of God is a, what? Living and active. It's like a double-edged sword that divides us joint and marrow. It cuts us internally, but it cuts us not like a sword, but like a scalpel. You know the difference? A sword lops parts of our body off to destroy us. A scalpel cuts things out to heal us. And as the gospel message lives within us, it's living and active. It's cutting. And it's cutting things out that are cancerous in our lives. He says, let live in the spirit. Let the word, let the gospel live in you. 
Let it abide in you. You're not moving on from the gospel. Listen, the gospel, I've used this illustration before, forgive me. Some of it's been a long time though. The gospel is like, ladies, whenever your husband, if you're married in the room or if you're single, you long to have, right, some of you, that relationship in which the man gets down on one knee and he pulls a ring out of his pocket or a little box, actually, and he opens it up. Those little boxes always squeak like, and in that box is this gold band with this monstrous rock sitting on top, right? There's a beautiful gemstone, a beautiful diamond sitting there. And as, as, you, as you are just taken aback in the glow and glory of that moment, and you say, yes, we hope, right? There's probably been some conversation going on before that, right? You say yes, and you take the ring out and you put it on your finger. What's the first thing you do? Hold it up to the light. Why? Because in the light, that diamond, all, you know what makes up the beauty of that diamond is all the facets inside. All the angles, all the cuts of that, of, of the clarity, the carrots, right? All those C's and K's and, I don't know, right? C's, right? All the C's. But all those facets inside that diamond are refracting and reflecting the light that passes through it. And it's shining its radiance. It's like this disco ball in your eyes. Right? And you see that beautiful gemstone. That is the gospel. It's the, most be- the largest gem ever to be mined in the history of the world. And listen, it has so many facets that as the Holy Spirit shines the light on the truth and beauty of Jesus, it's just reflecting and refracting all across that beautiful gem in your life. So you don't need to move on from it, but you need to behold the different facets and the Spirit knows the timing in which you need each facet in your life. Man, I could go, we could talk about this for a long time. But listen, that's the, the ministry of the Spirit and the beauty of the gospel come together to present this glorious image before your eyes of Jesus. So you're not moving on from Him. But what you heard from the beginning is living in you. And that looks like at least three things. I'm going to give them to you before we close this morning. The first one is this. Is that you build your identity on the Gospel. Because every other source of identity is fault, a faulty foundation. Listen, and this is, this is not a one-time building project. This is a building project that goes on day after day after day after day. As you get up and you look at that gem, the Holy Spirit shining on it. As you read the Scriptures, you're showing you the beauties and glories of Christ from Genesis to Revelation, and you're seeing it and glorying in it, and you're saying, yes, that is the source of my life, not my career. Not my kids. Not my spouse. Not my home. Listen, my, my kids have a little Jenga set in the uh, clo- game closet at our home. Every once in a while they pull it out and they'll stack it all up and we'll kind of poke all the blocks around. But listen, every other foundation that you would build your life on, here's what happens when it's removed. You ever play Jenga? You get down on that last block, right? It's just kind of like wobbling there. You hit that line, boom, it collapses. The tower comes crashing down. 
And when you build your foundation of your life on anything other than who God is, who he says you are in the gospel as an adopted son or daughter of his who is fully and freely and finally forgiven because of his grace, because his love and justice met at the cross. And by faith you believe that. When you build your life on any other foundation, grades, athletics, academics, your life is like a tower that's about to topple because at some point, somebody's going to remove one of those blocks. So you build your identity on the gospel. Second of all, second of all, you draw nourishment from the gospel. See, oftentimes we are tempted to believe when we hit seasons of dryness. You ever have some of those where you feel like you're in the desert spiritually? Right? Or you're in the wilderness God's, God's not there. I, I felt my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. I open the Word and it's like reading a history novel. Right? There's no, I'm not sensing or seeing anything. And oftentimes in those periods of dryness, we're tempted to believe we need something other than the Gospel to kickstart our spiritual lives once again. We've got to go somewhere else. We've got to look for something else. We need something new, something fresh. What you don't, listen, what what I've come to learn over the last 20 years, 25 years of knowing Jesus, is that what I need is not something new, but something true. It's something true to draw nourishment from. And so I keep coming back to the source of truth and stick, you have to stick our faces in the source of truth and be nourished by it. So it, it goes from being like, I, I was listening to a statistic on the radio the other day, said that, 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 that there's... Like, you know, Texas has been in a drought for who, who knows how long, right? Remember, the drought broke in like 2015 uh, for a season. And it, it, we just go through these periodic seasons of drought where like 80% of Texas might be in, in severe drought conditions. Right now, I think there's less than 10% of the state of Texas that's in severe drought conditions because the rain has fallen fiercely and frequently like yesterday where every little creek is swollen, every little drain is running, every little retention pond is full to the brim, right? And there are seasons like that in our spiritual lives. But listen, whenever you're in the drought, whenever you're in the wilderness and you're in the desert, the thing that will break open the floodgates in your life is the illuminating work of the Spirit coupled with the beauty and glory of the Gospel as revealed in the pages of God's Word. And so we keep going back to that well because it runs deep. So be nourished by it. And then third and finally, third and finally, be changed by it. Be changed by it. See, not, not, not acquaintance with it, but allowing it to reform your priorities and your practices. Because if this is who I am, and this is where I receive my food and drink, as I take it in and it lives in me, eventually that life that's going on inside of you, if it's real and existent, it begins to come outside show itself through actions, through practices, through behaviors, through conduct. Right? The difference between the gospel and 
legalistic religion is that the legalistic religion tries to force practices, behaviors, and conduct from the outside in. John says, no, 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 no. If what you heard from the beginning is abiding in you, it will come from the inside out. And it will flow downstream in your life into all kinds of change and transformation. Listen, we are being hunted. So live in the Spirit. Let the Gospel live in you. Listen, as you process what God has said this morning in His Word, if right now, maybe you have found yourself to be one of those victims of those who have sought to be deceptive in the church or in cults or wherever it is that you've come across divergent views of Jesus, then what he says about himself, I and the Father are one. There's no way to the Father other than through me. That Jesus came in the flesh, that he died, that he bled, that he suffered, that he was our substitute. If there's some other view of Jesus that you've embraced in your heart and that you're entertaining in your mind, I want to invite you this morning to turn to this Jesus who has revealed himself through his word and to his apostles and throughout history to his church. And that you might in him find a secure source of your identity. A place to be nourished. And a place to experience change. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we ask that Your Spirit would take the truth of Your Word and would illumine it before our hearts. That the anointing that those of us in this room who are Christians have received, that it would lead us into all truth, it would reveal to us the beauty and glory of Jesus. That we would not see a need to move on from Him but to rest more fully in Him, to cling more tightly to Him, and to live more freely in Him. And that we would build our identity, draw our nourishment, and experience life change. Because we are holding fast as Jude says, to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Father, I pray for some of us in the room that we would grow in our understanding of what your word says about your son, of what you've revealed to us about who Jesus is, so that we would not be sitting ducks and that we be able to distinguish truth from lie. As we devote ourselves to your word, and as the internal witness of the Spirit confirms the person of Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name.